So uh, last night, probably stayed up a little too late watching the Final Four. Anybody, uh, anybody with me on that? All right, Final Four. Uh, any North Carolina fans? All right, Syracuse. Sorry about that. You know, I, I was watching the game, and uh, North Carolina, who I'm, I'm personally rooting for, I, I grew up in that area of, of the country, and for for the life of them, they couldn't get a three a three point bucket uh, for the for the first half. And as I thought, you know, because they're going to they're going to move on to the next game. That any sport doesn't matter if it's hockey, baseball, football, uh, basketball. Every sport always does a post game. They an, they analyze what happened in that game and what went wrong, what they did well, but what they didn't do so well. And it's one of the greatest teaching tools that we have as human beings to evaluate. As they say, you know, uh, those who choose to forget history will repeat it. We, we know that saying. So there's a history that, that we have as human beings. The history is recorded here in the scripture. And it's helpful for us to look back and say, let's do a post game on certain things that happen so that we can learn our own course and not repeat those mistakes. Businesses do this all the time. You know, even in our, our recent history, you've got uh, stores like Borders Bookstore or uh, Blockbuster that have that have gone out of business. Uh, Circuit City, Sharper Image, they're all off the radar right now because they 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 made a mistake. And, and this week, I, I actually went back and studied some of those companies. And each of them had one fatal move. It was just one thing that they blew. For example, Borders Bookstore... They, you know, there's ebooks. They were really slow in introducing the ebook because they weren't sure it was going to stick. And places like Barnes and Noble, they surpassed them. And by the time they said, okay, let's do the ebook, it was entirely too late and it took them down. Circuit City fired 3,400 of its highest paid employees and took all of their experience and veterans out of the game and blew it. Blockbuster didn't see Netflix sneaking up behind them. And they kept renting out DVDs and Blu-rays and didn't tap into the digital world until it was entirely too late. Sharper Image, you know, their Flagstaff product was the Ionic uh, machine or something. It put ions in uh, or something like that in the air, whatever. And and then the, the health department came out and said, that's actually not really healthy for you. It's really bad. Sunk the ship. So I'm sure that other companies looked at, at them like, let's not repeat that error. Let's not fire the top 3,400 of our employees or what, what, let's make sure we're on top of new products. I think the same is true for us as Christians. That it's important for us at times to go back and look at the failures of those who came before us and say, wow, man, let's, let's change that and not fall into the same trap. Let's not be a spiritual borders or or a blockbuster and let's succeed instead of fail. We've been having these conversations for nine weeks now on tribes, tribal living around the world. And the reason that we've done that is that we've learned principles from the tribes around the world because they often live together better than we have. So as I was doing this study, I noticed that some tribes were still alive and well today, but many others became extinct for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes it was disease that took a whole tribe out. Sometimes it was infighting. Sometimes it was enemies from the outside. Sometimes it was just that they didn't take time to strategize about how they were going to grow or multiply. A lot of different reasons. 
And with that in mind, what we're going to do today is that we're going to use the Old Testament as an example. Because in the Old Testament, if you're not familiar with it, God was working with one particular group of people, one particular uh, uh, nation, the nation of Israel. And you might remember that they were divided into 12 tribes. And the entire Old Testament is how they lived with each other and how they lived with God. And God was trying to show us in the Old Testament that he was long-term, not short-term. He was trying to prove to us that he was long-suffering, that he was patient, even when people stepped off the line over and over. The benefit of reading the Word of God on a constant basis, Martin Luther, for example, read through the Old Testament once every single year. He read through the New Testament two times every single year. And when you begin to read the Bible at that level, year after year, what happens is there are patterns that kind of surface and say, wow, there it is again. There it is again. And so today what we're going to look at in the nation of Israel are three primary um, potholes that they stepped in over and over that caused them to sink every time. Every time they, they made this mistake, uh, it, it was just, it, everything headed south. Everything went downhill. Then we're going to transfer that over to our tribe. We're a New Testament tribe. Different way of looking at things. Jesus turned things upside down. And so we begin with the nation of Israel. And when I was, when I was driving over this morning, I thought, you know, these things are not scintillating. I'm going to say three things today. And I'm, I'm going to guess that none of them like, wow, that's, that's just stunning. I never heard of that before. And the reason is that I believe it's the simple, repeated things that often trip us up. It's those things that we know that trip us up. Even in everyday life, we know we should exercise. We know we should eat right. We know that we do all those things. But sometimes it's those things that we trip over and like, oh, I just don't need to do that. We begin in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel and the book of Deuteronomy. Where Moses, this is the, the la, his last address to his people. And he begins to give them some warnings about the future. And the first pothole that we'll see, the thing that, that repeated over and over that they, that, that they, that caused them to, uh, fail was something that is as common now in America that, that, uh, it, we almost take it for granted. And I'm holding it in my hand right now. The word of God. You see, the word of God is truth. We believe it to be absolute truth. We believe that it is in the inspired, inerrant word of God, that when he delivered it, it came from his heart to us as human beings, that he used human writers, but he inspired them miraculously and mysteriously through the power of the Holy Spirit that they penned exactly what he wanted to, to, to say. Truth never changes. My hair is changing. It's growing less and grayer. The truth never grows less or gray. Never does. I have things in my home that are deteriorating, that are molding. I saw a little mold the other day. Truth never molds. You see, truth never changes even when it's inconvenient. Truth never changes even when it's unpopular. Truth never changes even when it's challenged. Truth never changes even when we suffer for it, like John Wycliffe and John Wesley, like Martin Luther. These men and women throughout history were willing to hold to truth 
Because here's the value of holding to truth. It preserves the past and it brings it into the future. I'll say it again. Guarding the truth preserves the path, the past, and brings it into the future. We look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 as we begin today. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 1 and verse 12. God, again, is speaking through Moses, and here are the words he says to the, to the people. Now, uh, keep the context in mind. They have not yet arrived in the promised land. And before they go over, knowing that they'll be influenced by a lot of different other people, a lot of different other tribes in this context, he gives them this warning. He says, these are the commands, the decrees and the laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe. In the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, the promised land, be careful that you do not forget the Lord. You see, the way that we don't forget the Lord is that we preserve the truth that he has given to us. This was the task that the Israelites were given. And And he goes on to say, be careful that you don't forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Don't forget the story. Now, just two books later, you have the book of Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book of the Bible. And then you have the sixth book, Joshua. And that's the book where Joshua leads. Moses is dead. Joshua leads into the promised land. He leads the nation of Israel into the promised land. A lot of fighting, a lot of battles because they're conquering the land. Then you have the book of Judges. So just two books later, watch what happens in Judges chapter 2. After that whole generation, that he's speaking now, we're speaking of Joshua's generation. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, that means they died, and another generation, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. They forgot to preserve the truth. The consequence for all of us, by the way, the consequence is the next is the next passage here in in Judges chapter twenty one and verse twenty five. In those days in Israel, everyone did as he saw fit. Sound familiar? Now listen. It's easy to think when I read that passage and those words. It's easy to think, oh. He's speaking of the world at large. The world does as they see fit. When I was before Christ, I was in the world. I did as I saw fit, did everything I saw fit. The challenge is he's not speaking about the world. He's speaking about his own people. Watch, look at the verse again. In those days where? In Israel, in the tribe, in God's people. Everyone, all of God's people did as they saw fit. And the reason is they lost the truth, they lost the compass, they lost the absolute. So when you lose the compass in the woods, guess which way you go? Whichever way you want. I'm not a survival expert, so I, I can't look at the stars and the moon, the moss on the tree and all that jazz. I'm going to go like the probably the path of least resistance. And what was happening, it was the downfall that when you read the Old Testament over and over and over, and God knew it because he said, don't forget truth. Don't forget it. So let me pick on ourselves as Christians, if I might, respectfully. Some people say the church is in decline in America. And my the, the actual numbers are, 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 it would not say that the whole church is in, in decline. All of Christians are in decline. That's not the truth. It's those that are 
holding to the word of God that you begin to see life and growth and multiplication. Respectfully speaking, because I was in it for years, and, and this is not across the board, but those denominational churches that begin to modify the word of God, without exception, they are in a decline. Now, there are some great denominational churches. I, I just spent some time with the pastor of Covenant Life, a Presbyterian, a man of, of the word of God, and, and, we, and he is holding on to the word. So this is not a, you know, a blanket statement for everybody that's in a denominational church. But what we see is that when people begin, when churches begin to cave, denominational or not, when they begin to cave because of the pressure of culture on them, where they speak unpopular messages and truth, and they want everybody to like them, and they change the truth because they want people to like them. I'm a human being. I want you to like me, but I don't. I, I will pick truth more than I will pick you liking me. And so, um, it's not always the easiest position, is it? But it is always the best position. Why? Because we are preserving the story of God, the heart of God, and the best design for God. When we speak of sin, for example, people think, well, that's offensive. No, actually it's not. See, when you don't speak of sin, you can't speak of a savior. When you don't say, man, this is a, this is, this is not in God's design. This is sin. This is a, this is going to result in ultimate failure. We're actually not loving anybody by taking that approach. I saw this, this quote this week by a guy named Mortimer Adler. He wrote this, we have forgotten that he who will not answer to the rudder will answer to the rocks. Now, we're speaking corporately, and there's no rock throwing here, because when I look in the mirror, the worst moments in my life are the moments that I disregarded the rudder of God's word, and I crashed into the rocks every time. How about you? Truth matters. So the first pothole that we want to avoid is dismissing the word of God or modifying or changing the word of God. Here's the second thing. Having the word of God comes with something else that's important. Truth comes with else as something important. And it's a word that I've used before, and sometimes it puzzles people when I use the word in attachment and connection to God. And the word is romance. You see, God was a romantic at heart. He calls the church not just an organization, but the body of Christ. But then he goes on and further and says, it's the bride of Christ. In the Old Testament, God refers to himself as jealous. He was jealous. He had passion over his people. And at one point he says, I'm going to divorce you. It's how impassioned that he got. See, it's, it's, it's not just only important to have truth and just to say, I'm just going to live by truth. But there's something that God tells us over and over that he was trying to tell the people in the Old Testament, it kind of looks like this, if I could put it in words, this rhythm with God. It happens in the best marriages that they're not just based on some some pledge that was made at an altar years ago. My wife and I, this will be 21 years of marriage. 21 years ago, just because I said I do, and that's truth, and we're going to hold to that vow, well, that was just the beginning. You see, when you're in rhythm, you you know what you do? You hold hands. You dance in the kitchen. 
You text one another. You leave sticky notes. I'll stop there. I said it in the first service. I'll say it today. I love my wife deeply. And I probably text her some love note probably a half a dozen times every every day. Thank you. That's my wife. No, I'm just kidding. When's the last time you held God's hand? I don't know that sounds crazy, but you know what I mean. When is the last time, like, man, it's just not about being right. God never gave us the Bible and the truth just to be right. The Pharisees had all the rightness, and Christ said, you've missed the romance. You missed the text, the hand-holding. There's sometimes, I told a guy at the church this morning, and I looked at him, I said, you guys had a fight on the way to church, didn't you? I shocked him. I'm like, I know the guy real well. He goes, we did have a fight. I said, go over there and take her hand. And then I saw him over there cuddling. I tell him to cut it out after that. <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. Watch Moses addressing everyone. He says, and now Israel. He's saying, hey, everybody. What does the Lord your God ask of you but to respect him, to fear the Lord your God? And watch, to walk in obedience, not just to obey him, but to walk in rhythm and obedience to him, to love him, to serve him, to serve the Lord your God. Watch, with all your passion, with all your heart, with all your soul, man. We think that's only a New Testament command. No, 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 no. Way back in Deuteronomy, God's saying, fill the jazz, fill the romance, fill the rhythm. With the living God. It's important. To, to, uh, uh, a few books later, 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 21. Uh, the priest Eli had a daughter-in-law. And she had a baby. And she named this baby this riveting name. You see, in the Old Testament, they had uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, is, it's complicated if you don't know the Old Testament. But it contained in there the words of God. And whenever the Ark of the Covenant in those days came into their presence, there was this mysterious presence of God. It represented for them the heart of God when they had the Ark of the Covenant in their community. They went to war, and the enemy troops stole the, the Ark of the Community, the Ark, Ark of the Covenant. You think, okay, it was just a, it's just a piece of furniture. No, it represented something for them. They had lost their heart. They had lost their heart, and God was picturing for them, you lost your heart, you've lost the presence, you've lost the rhythm. And Eli's daughter-in-law names her boy Ichabod. Anybody name their child Ichabod in the room? I doubt it. It's like naming your child Lucifer. It's, it's not on the list of most popular names. She named the boy Ichabod because it means the glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God. It's a sad moment. It's the second thing. They, they sometimes lost the word of God. Sometimes they lost their, the, the, their romance. And thirdly, they lost their vision. You know this verse, many of you, uh, Proverbs 29, verse 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. 
First Samuel chapter three, verse one. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. There was no clarity. Where are we going? Where are our next steps? What's the touchdown? How do we know when to celebrate? It was as if they were playing on a football field with no lines. They didn't know when they were out of bounds or inbounds. They didn't know where the first down marker was. They didn't know where the touchdown was. They had no idea. So by the time Jesus shows up, as recorded in Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were lost. They were harassed. They had, they were helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Like a hiker without a compass. I mean, it, it, it just, they were lost. So a few weeks ago, uh, I, I told you last week that we were in, uh, uh, New York City. We took a family vacation there. And you know, you're trying not to be that tourist. You're trying to fit into the, to the rhythm of the city, you know. And so we had a, uh, nowadays instead of big maps, that's cool because that, that's a true giveaway. They, they've got everything on a, on a smartphone. And so Google Maps is wonderful for big cities because it tells you which subway to catch and all that. And uh, so you come out of the subway and you're you're tracking with your with your cell phone and you're just trying to you know come out of the subway and there's a whole throng of people coming and you're trying to you know kind of walk with confidence in what they're doing and and you're on 34th Street you know you got to go to 36th Street and it and it tells you right there plain and simple your destination is 36th Street the problem is you know for visitors we don't know exactly which way 36th Street is. And so uh, what what I would say to the family is like, you know, just keep walking. And I was acting as if I knew where I was going. But inwardly, I knew I didn't. And I was trying to have my cheat sheet there with my, my smartphone of, of where I was going until almost every single time like I give up, we would huddle in a corner on some, uh, you know, in some busy street. And we're looking and, and it was just a giveaway at that point. Listen, if we as a church don't have a vision and know where we're going, it's easy sometimes to act like we do. It's easy to have a mission statement and say, wait, we got a mission statement, but it's not enough. It's not enough to not have a clear direction to know exactly where God has navigated our minds and hearts in the church, it's important. It's not enough just to get together. It was not enough for Israel to say we're Israel. They needed to understand where God was taking them. So here's what I want to do in in the time we have remaining. And it may be an unexpected turn for you because it's so easy to say, okay, this is the way things always were and always will be. But Jesus came along. And when, and, and he began to turn things around. Let me explain what I mean by that. In the, in the Old Testament, only certain people could do certain things. Jesus came along and said, Oh, you're a fisherman? You're in. You're a tax collector? You're in. It blew people's mind. In the Old Testament, those who had leprosy were marginalized. They were quarantined. They were sequestered. I've said before, I'll say again, the first thing that Jesus did when he stepped off the mount, when, on the Sermon on the Mount, he reached his physical hand out and he touched the untouchable. You read it, Matthew chapter 8, came off the mountain and he laid his hand on a leper and I'm telling you, there must have been a collective because <gasps> nobody touched a leper. 
in the Old Testament. Christ, when he died on the cross, mysteriously, miraculously, there's this big, thick curtain, the veil that was hanging in the temple that only special clergy, the priest, the high priest could go behind. And on the cross, there was an earthquake. Things turned dark. And in that moment, that veil would rip, it ripped wide open. And it was the heart of God saying, come on in, everyone. It's not just special people. It's not just pastors. See, Christ was saying, the way this thing is going to be activated is that you get involved. You become tribal. So let's take each of these things uh, uh, just briefly. Let's take the, the word of God. See, in the Old Testament, here's how things went down. Moses came off the mountain. He's got the, he's got the word of God. He stands before the people, and he's reading the word of God to them. Um, there's a place in, this, in the Old Testament. There's a young guy named Josiah. The word of God had been lost. They discovered this, the, 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 the word of God in the temple. They brought it to Josiah. He was the king. And the king, because he was in a leadership position, gathered all the people, and he read it to them. They didn't read it. He read it to them. Nehemiah, they built a wall. At the end of the wall, Ezra, at the end of the construction project, Ezra, the scribe, stepped forward. I, I brought you an example. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 3. Ezra, he was a leader. He read from the law from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women uh, and those who could understand in other words, it was like the dark ages where the people were kept from the word of God. And those like, like uh, Jan Hus, John Wycliffe, Martin Luther, John Wesley, they said, no, we've got to get the word of God into the hands of the people. You see, in the Old Testament, I'll put it this way. Many things were legislated. In the New Testament, many things are activated by the people. This is a pivotal change in the New Testament that if we don't catch it, we'll miss the energy and the jazz of the activation of what God wants us to experience. Let me, let me go a little further. There's some people after the service, they want to come up and say hi. And, and, and we invite you to do that. But I've had people from time to time come to me and say, hey, I'm standing here and they say, hey, am I allowed to come up here on this platform? I quickly inform them they're not allowed up here. It's a sacred space. Of course not. I say, come on up, you know, because here's, here's, here's what's up here. It's carpet. That's it. There's nothing sacred about, uh, there's nothing sacred about this space whatsoever. It's just, it's just carpet. When it comes to the Word of God, God puts it in our hands in the New Testament. And it's activated. Listen. It's activated not just when we preserve it, but when we engage each other with it. Watch Colossians chapter 3 verse 16. New Testament. Don't, you don't find this in the Old Testament. New Testament. New day. Watch. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. All right. You ready for it? It's not enough. To preserve the word of God, we must activate it in each other's life in a New Testament church. And that's when it comes alive. That's why we believe so deeply at 360, if you're kind of new to, to who we are, in one-to-one discipleship. We have a one-to-one discipleship track that takes about 14 or 15 months. In this fast-paced culture, that's unheard of. 
But we believe that that has how we not only receive the word of God best, but it's how we activate it in other people's lives. Man, I'm all down for Bible classes. I love Bible classes. I love learning the Bible. I love sitting under someone who's a, a master. And man, hear, hear me out. That is a fantastic thing. If you're involved in it, keep doing it. But something happens when we take the word of God that we've learned and begin to activate it in someone else's life through discipleship. I'm telling you, we we see it over and over in this church where people are like, wow, even I can do it. You don't have to be a seminary grad. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to do all these things. No, that's the exciting thing about the Old Testament. This Jesus on the cross is saying, come on in. You teach the word of God. You know, I've got somebody that comes in my living room every single night, every night. And he teaches us a new scripture verse by memory every single night. You know who that is? My 11-year-old. My 11-year-old. Puts me to shame. I was just memorizing a verse yesterday, uh, Acts 4.12. And... Um, uh, you know, your age starts to show when you start memorizing, right? Uh, salvation is found in no one else. All right, salvation. All right, no one. Okay, no one else. There, you know, it starts to going like that in my mind, right? <laughs> this eleven-year-old kid comes in and teaches us about the consistency and the beauty of the Word of God. And watch, here's the deal. We're thrilled. We're parents. I mean, you know, that, that's a cool deal, right? When, when your kids get to that level. He's more thrilled than we are. He can't wait. He's in, man. He's not a priest. He's not a pastor. I, I think there's something in there in the pastor part. I think there's some in the DNA maybe that he's going to be one, but I, I don't know. But he, when he comes in, like, you guys ready? You ready? And he loves that. I'm telling you, this is what keeps a tribe alive in the New Testament. Not that we just preserve truth, but we activate it in each other's lives. Watch this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ from him, the whole body joined together. This tribe held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up. In love. And each part does its work. Remember the mantra of the tribe. Everybody pitches in. And when everybody pitches in, man, and starts, the, and, and discipleship has grown in this church from just two people doing it to about a hundred people doing it. And I'm telling you, it has brought life to this church. Let me tell you something. And I say it with great sadness. One to one discipleship. And the church culture is nearly extinct. I say we change that. What do you think? I say we change that. That's my wife again. I'm just kidding. <laughs> now watch. Um, the Great Commission, before we leave this topic of the Word of God. The Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. This is why Jesus said, go make disciples and teach them. You teach them, Peter. You teach them, fisherman. You teach them, tax collector. You teach them everything I've commanded to you. And surely because of that, I am right in the mix of that every day. Every day. God gets excited when the 11-year-old is teaching the 57-year-old pastor any day of the week. 
56, sorry, it's the allergy medicine. (laughs) Quickly, these last two points. Let's talk about the romance. See, back in the day in the Old Testament, people had to go to that special place for the presence of God. You know where we go with it now? To each other. We are carriers of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus said, when two or three come together in my name, I'm there with them. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4, he said, when you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I'm there with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present. I was in my men's group yesterday. We did a, almost a four-mile hike with a, with a pack on and all that jazz, and we sat down, and we, and we really spoke into each other's life and heart, and, and I drove away, and like, man, that is, there was something there. It's more than just getting together. There's a presence of God when we come together as believers. And then after that, I did my one-to-one discipleship, and I drove away thinking, there's something mysterious about coming together. You see, the jazz that's activated in the church is not when we're just worshiping on our own, but it's when we come together and we activate that that romance of God with each other. And because the Holy Spirit is living in each of us, not just the glory of God and the Holy of Holies. Make sense? That's that's a bit complicated. Here's the final thing. Vision. A church together should understand where we're going. This is why we're going to do... ID 360 on April 21st. We ought to all understand if, in fact, you say, man, this is my tribe. And I'm here to tell you that it is important that we understand where we're going together and we get there together. Watch this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It's plural, not singular. For we are God's workmanship. You're orange, I'm yellow, you're blue, you're, 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 uh, 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 I forgot the list already. This medicine's really kicking in. Yellow. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do together. It's no longer just the clergy or the, uh, the upper ups doing this, this vision process. It's us together. And so that's why in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, we read these words. It was Christ who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors, some to be teachers. Why? So that we prepare everybody in the tribe, God's people, for the work of the ministry so that the body of Christ might be built up and we can come alive. Now listen, let me end with this. The world doesn't need a dead church. It doesn't. The world needs a church that is alive. A world, uh, the world needs to look in and see a church where the people, the participants of the tribe don't have the oars in the back of the boat, but the oars are in the water. So I invite you, I invite you to wherever you are in this tribe, maybe you're just brand new to say, man, put your oars in the water, find out a little bit more. And I understand, man, some people are freaked out like I'm getting a small group. I I get all that. And if you want to talk about that, let's talk about it. Let's have the conversation. Here's why. I will remind you as we close today that we looked a few weeks ago at this tribe and they had this this saying in in Africa. It was a one word uh, for them, but it's a phrase for us, Ubuntu. And I don't know if you remember the meaning of Ubuntu. I am because we are. That's the beauty of coming together. I am because we are. I am a more refined person 
I am a more challenged person because of you. I'm a more, I'm a person more in love with Christ because of you. You are too. In other words, the deeper we get into tribal life, spiritual tribal life, spiritual community, spiritual fellowship, you put whatever word you, you want to put on it. I'm just happening to use the word tribal. The deeper, watch, the deeper you get in, the better you are for Christ. The better you are for Christ. And the world needs desperately to see churches that are alive, that are holding to the word of God, that have a clear understanding of where they're going. And finally, they have a little romance. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful, God, for the advantage of looking back, for having in our hands what many generations did not, even peoples around the world, God, don't have what we have, the word of God. And because we hold the word of God, truth preserved for our present and for our future, because we have this truth preserved from the past, God, it is such an advantage that we can look back so that we can avoid the pitfalls that your people have fallen in time after time. So God, I begin this prayer by praying for this church. And I pray, Father, that we will be a church that holds to your word, that holds to truth, so that we can preserve, God, who you are and what's important to your heart. That we can, that we can be clear, God, of what what pleases you and what doesn't. So that the Savior of this world, Jesus Christ, is absolutely uh, so clear as the light of this world, Father, and, and, and not, not clogged and not fogged by, by our own modifications of truth. God, help us as a church to hold on to your word. But not only that, Father, help us to activate your word. Help us to be willing to be one of those that that disciples someone else or willing to be discipled, to teach one another, to pour the word of God into each other, God, so that there's joy in holding to your word and the activation of it. I pray, Father, for romance in this church. I pray, Father, who for those in this room who are only afraid of you. They haven't fully grasp that, that they have been ravished by your love, that they've been covered, God, by, by your care, that you went to the extent of death on a cross to love them. I pray for those, God, who this morning find that the romance with you, the rhythm with you has, has grown, grown dim, has grown pale, I pray, Father, that today you would remind them that you stand waiting every day for them to hold your hand, to send a word of prayer, of, of, of love, God, to be in rhythm and romance with you. I pray, God, for this church that as we understand, God, that the vision is shared here, 
that it is open, that the doors are unlocked, and it is important for us to hear from the hearts of, of the people in, the, in this church. And pray, Father, that we will come together in a unified way for the clarity of where you want us to go and help us, God, to dream big, to ask more than we can imagine, to not box you in, Father, but that we could be part of changing our culture and changing this world. And finally today, God, together as a church at 360, we pray for other churches here in this city. Thank you, God, for those who are holding to the word of truth. Thank you, God, for them. We pray for courage in their hearts. We pray for those who have stood on the on truth. We pray, God, that you will, when even when it's convenient and even when they're challenged, God, to hold the truth. Pray you'll activate romance in their life and in, in the life of their church and their leaders. And pray, God, you would just blow the, the power of the Holy Spirit's wind into the churches in this city for the sake of those who look on that desperately need to see Christ alive in our midst. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Our prayer.